can be found in your pew Bibles on page 1522. Matthew 15, 21 through 28. Shall we bow our heads in prayer? O Heavenly Father, open our hearts to your word and bless Pastor Chris as he brings your message to us this morning. In your name we pray. Amen. Leaving that place, Jesus withdrew to the region of Tyre and Sidon. A Canaanite woman from that vicinity came to him crying out, Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. My daughter is suffering, suffering terribly from demon possession. Jesus did not answer a word. So his disciples came to him and urged him, Send her away, for she keeps crying out after us. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. The woman came and knelt before him. Lord, help me, she said. He replied, It is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to their dogs. Yes, Lord, she said, but even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered, Woman, you have great faith. Your request is granted. And her daughter was healed from that very hour. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, John. We live in a world right now where issues of racism and sexism and classism dominate the news. We hear almost weekly some celebrity or some powerful person making an offhand comment or a very intentional comment that goes at the core identity of another person or another people group and says they are not worthy. It leaves us as we hear those things churning inside. How do we respond? What do we say? What do we do? And when we see the inaction of others to stop that type of rhetoric, we start to feel helpless. This text today actually steps into the middle of a similar context among the Jewish people and even among the disciples that Jesus had following him. This passage really does confront a, a racism and a sexism that is existing among the Jewish people at the time that Jesus is alive and, and even among his disciples. And as we engage the text today, we're going to hear the text confronting those two things. Even more than that, it's going to confront them in order to reveal to us that Jesus' kingdom really is for the whole world and not just for people like us. It's going to reorient, this text does, of what it means to be God's children. And as it confronts these things, it starts anticipating the coming fullness of God's kingdom. We'll ask a simple question of, so now what? Where do we go from here? 
The text begins with leaving that place, Jesus withdrew to the region of Tyre and Sidon. That word withdrew is really important for us to pay attention to. Jesus withdraws a number of times, and most often when it says he withdraws, it's so that he can pray and be intentional with his disciples or just by himself in God's presence. He's taking a a space out of the busyness and intensity of the ministry that he's been in, and he's pulling back a little bit. It's often a place where, where it says Jesus withdrew to a lonely place, or he withdrew to the mountains, or he withdrew to a quiet place. He's pulling back. But this time, instead of pulling back into the wilderness or pulling back into a quiet place, it says he withdrew to a region of Tyre and Sidon. It's interesting because it is pushing Jesus outside of the territory of Israel. He's intentionally stepping out in this withdrawal out of his primary ministry place. And he's moving actually quite far north. To give us an example of of where he's going, if you see the arrow on the bottom, Jerusalem is way down on the bottom of the screen here. It's way towards the bottom. And, And most of Jesus' ministry happened between Jerusalem and Samaria, which is right there by that arrow, and up next to Capernaum, where Jesus had his adulthood home. Capernaum is on the north side there of the Sea of Galilee, and you've got a few other cities right around it that we hear about from time to time. Chorazin and Bethsaida, those are all surrounding that northern part of the Sea of Galilee. And that's often where Jesus ends up going. And you will hear in Scripture him moving from Galilee to Jerusalem and back again. That's most of where he's at. But this text says he withdrew to the region of Tyre and Sidon. It's way up there. It's on the coast. There are two cities outside of the people of Israel. It would be modern-day Lebanon today. Uh, and, and he's up in that area. At that time, that whole area was known for being under the rule of uh, Syria and Phoenicia. And those two areas together uh, are kind of a, the foreign land. It's the place, if you're a good Jew, you just don't go. And yet, this text begins by saying that Jesus withdrew, which is a, a signal that he's taking a step back to recharge with his father and to reorient himself in the midst of his ministry. And he withdraws to a place outside of Israel. Most of the time in the history of Israel, when Israel or its people go outside of the land of Israel, they believe that to be a place that is forsaken by God. They enter a place where they feel their absence or their distance from God. So it's really should catch our attention here, this first sentence, that Jesus withdrew to Tyre and Sidon, to that area where most of the time they say, God just isn't out there. He's not with those people. Why would you go there? You should go to Jerusalem and to the temple if you want to see God. And Jesus goes quite far away to be with his Father. There's two other things about this him withdrawing here that we should pay attention to. In Luke chapter 4, it's, it's the story where Jesus gets up in front of, 
in front of the synagogue for the first time and he, he takes that scroll from Isaiah and he reads about the Spirit of the Lord being upon him. And everybody's happy and, hey, great, Jesus is here. And then he says, but you'll say to me, do these signs that we've heard you do elsewhere and I'll tell you a prophet is not honored in his hometown. And then he says this, I assure you that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time when the sky was shut for three and a half years and there was a severe famine throughout the land. Yet Elijah was not set to any of them, but to a widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon. Zarephath, you probably couldn't see it on the map, but it's actually about halfway between Tyre and Sidon along the coast. It's a little city, a little town there. And, and so Jesus is, in starting his ministry, pointing the people to say, you know what? God actually is concerned about people that you hate. God actually has a heart for them. And in the time of the famine, he even sent his prophet, the prophet you really love, out to be with those people. Those people. And there were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha the prophet, yet not one of them was cleansed, only Naaman the Syrian. So Jesus, at the very start of his ministry, is pushing the boundaries of what the people think the Messiah is supposed to do and where they think God's salvation will end up. And he's saying, it's not just for you. It actually is for the whole world. And, and pick your enemies. Pick your enemies. Because God actually loves them. Think about who your enemies are. God loves them. And he's going out for them. In fact, he's sending me to them just as he sent Elijah the prophet and just as through Elisha he healed Naaman the Syrian. God loves these people up in Tyre and Sidon even though you don't. And another time, he actually calls out those cities around, uh, around the, the northern part of the Sea of Galilee. And, and he does so with an interesting contrast. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. In other words, the people of Tyre and Sidon are more receptive to God's word than you are. That's what he's saying to the people who live just next door to his hometown. And if you kept reading, he actually compares his hometown of Capernaum to Sodom and Gomorrah, saying that Sodom and Gomorrah will be better off on the judgment day than Capernaum will because they had hardened hearts they were refusing to see God's mission and God's work in the world and they wanted to keep God's grace and the privileges of being chosen by God all to themselves. And Jesus calls them out and says, no. I tell you, it will be more bearable for Tyre and Sidon on the day of judgment than for you. As we enter this text and as we engage Jesus' interaction with his disciples and with this this woman, this Canaanite Syrian woman who's come to talk to Jesus, come to plead with him. We need to hear in the background how Jesus has talked about Tyre and Sidon before. He's held them up as an example of faith. He's talked about the receptivity to the gospel. He's pointed said, God loves them and wants them in his kingdom as well. This text really is asking this. 
Jesus is coming up to his disciples through the woman coming to him and saying to his disciple, who's going to get fed from my table? Who do you think should have a seat at my table? Who belongs among my people and can be associated with me? A Canaanite woman from that vicinity came to him. Here's where it's helpful to compare these stories between the Gospels. This story occurs in in another one of the Gospels as well, and in that Gospel it says a Syrophoenician woman, which is saying the geographic area that that she's from. Here, Matthew goes back to the Old Testament language, language that wouldn't have been used for centuries at this point already, and says it was a Canaanite woman. Remember the Canaanites? They were the people that were were seen as God's enemy as the exodus were happening. They were the people that the Israelites were supposed to be afraid of because they worshipped other gods. They were the people who would lead Israel astray and keep them from living the fullness of life in the promised land. They were the despised ones. And when the exile happened, it was Canaanite men and women who married with Israelite men and women who later formed the region of Samaria. Canaanites. I don't like them. It was used here almost as a racial slur. That's the type of woman who just showed up to Jesus. And in that context, we need to hear the disciples' response. Pay attention to what the disciples do in this text. Jesus doesn't respond to her at first, so his disciples came to him and urged him. They plead with him. Send her away, for she keeps crying out after us. One of the commentators said that crying out should actually probably be used as the word hounding. She keeps hounding. She's nagging. She won't shut up. She just keeps getting in our face. Can't you silence her? We're getting irritated. She's annoying. They don't want anything to do with her. They see her as a Canaanite woman, one of those despised women, one of those people you can't trust, one of those people you better stay away from or you're going to be religiously unclean for a long time. Keep her away from us, Jesus. We don't want her anywhere near us. Get rid of her. Even if you have to give her what she's asking for, even if you have to, fill, have to fulfill her request and heal her daughter, even if you have to do that, just get rid of her. We don't want to be close to her. Disciples did this a whole bunch. And Jesus calls them out each time this happens. Blind Bartimaeus, the story in Mark 10. Bartimaeus is, is on the side of the road, and when he hears that Jesus of Nazareth was coming by, he began to shout, Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. Pay attention to those words because the woman uses them as well. Many rebuked him and told him to be quiet, but he shouted all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped him and said, Call him. Bring him to me. It happens with the little children a little while later in Matthew 19. And and, and there's this crowd that comes around Jesus and people are bringing the little children to Jesus for him to place his hands on them and pray for him. But look at the disciples' response. The disciples rebuked them. Keep the kids away. Kids are meant to be seen, not heard, and seen from a distance. Don't let them close to Jesus. Keep them back. Right? And Jesus rebukes them again. 
Let the little children come to me. Do not hinder them, for the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. And one more. Disciples are walking through Samaria, and there's a town there, Sychar, that resistant to Jesus. So resistant to him, and they're trying to push him out of the city that they, Jesus, it, the text says Jesus couldn't do much good in that city, couldn't do any of the miracles he had been doing elsewhere. And so they go on, and as James and John see this, they're all riled up. It's the Samaritans, those enemies. And, and look how they treat Jesus, our Savior. Look at how they're treating him. And they just want him to get rid of him. Lord, do you want us to call fire down from heaven and destroy them? So much for loving the enemies. You see the attitude that's among Jesus' disciples? It comes up again and again and again in the, in the Gospels. The disciples are postured in a way to say, we don't want any outsiders. Jesus is for us. God's salvation is for us. And if people want to come on our terms, maybe. But they better accept Jesus the way we accept him. And they better honor him the way we honor him. And they better not get too close. An arm's length, maybe a little more is better. Jesus' dialogue with the woman is really a dialogue confronting his disciples. The Syrian woman comes up. Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. My daughter is demon-possessed and suffering terribly. Remember, this is a woman who's outside of Israel, who, who realistically, by Israel's own doing, should know nothing about the Messiah, nothing about the son of David. And yet she comes to Jesus and she's crying out, Think of Hannah crying in the temple for God to hear her prayers. It's that guttural cry that you almost can't understand. She's crying out. She's weeping. Son of David, she knows who Jesus is. She's professing him. You know what's really interesting? Peter, when he makes that profession of Jesus, you are the Christ, it doesn't happen until two chapters after this. Jesus own disciples, the ones who are walking with him day in and day out, do not proclaim that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, until after this incident. This woman, who's the first woman Jesus has a direct conversation with in the Gospel of Matthew, this woman names Jesus for who he is before anybody else does. You are the Son of David. You are the Messiah. You are Lord Curie. You are the one she sees him and she knows him. She professes her faith. The disciples want to get rid of her. The woman came and knelt before him. Lord, help me, she said. Knelt before him. It's technically accurate, but it misses the connotation. This word knelt before really is this. I worship you. I beseech you, I pray to you, and in fact, many other times in the Gospels and elsewhere in the New Testament, when this word for knelt before is used, it gets translated as pray. She came before him in that posture of prayer. Lord, help me. And Jesus hears that. Lord, help me. She is 
lowering herself and honoring him as the God for who he is, worshiping him and in prayer pleading before him. And Jesus' response here is to talk about the food from the children's table and how it's not right to give it to the dogs. And we hear that and we're like, Jesus, you're being harsh. Remember, his words in this text are not directed at the woman. His words in this text, even when he's talking to the woman, are confronting his disciples' racism. He's calling them out. And so he's using the language they would use right here. Get this dog away from us. And in fact, in some of the other literature, that's the term used for people from this region by people of Israel. Her response to Jesus is one of profound. Yes, Lord, she said, even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. She has confidence in Jesus' character. Even amidst all the, the racial tension and the racism that's there, and she knows that that racism is a huge barrier and the gender between a woman talking to a man, much less to a rabbi in that culture, was unheard of. And she doesn't care. She knows that she can count on Jesus' character, and so she appeals to his character. For us to hear her response properly, we need to go back a little bit in Matthew and hear an example Jesus gave when he says, Ask, seek, and knock. Come before God in prayer. Ask, seek, and knock, and it will be given to you. In that context, Jesus is asking a question about God's goodness and the goodness of the Father. If your sons ask for bread, we'll give him a stone. Or if he asks for a fish, we'll give him a snake. If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? The operating principle that Jesus has is any analogy we have of our relationship to God in this world falls short because God is even that much better than we have imagined. His goodness is that much bigger than what we have anticipated. The Samaritan woman, the Syrian woman, sorry, the Syrian woman is essentially saying to Jesus, yeah, if a master gives that good of care, giving the crumbs to a dog from the table, how much more so will you give your good gifts to those who ask you? She's appealing to Jesus' character. If a human master can take care of the dogs in its house, how much more can you take care of those who seek you? How much more will you listen to them? And the answer comes in Jesus' response. Wow, woman, your faith. Your faith is incredible. And that response from Jesus of, of honoring her faith comes in contrast to him saying to his disciples repeatedly, O oh, you of little faith. Again and again, the disciples fall short and don't trust Jesus to be the God who he's revealing himself to be. They fail to see him. And this Syrian woman, who the disciples would never expect to have any right to come before God, knows not only who he is, but she trusts his character. She places her faith in him. And he says, wow, woman, your faith. I'm going to give you what you've asked for. 
your daughter's going to be healed right now. It's only the second time Jesus does a healing from a distance. The other time, with the centurion, a Roman soldier who was responsible for oppressing the people of Israel, but who trusted God and who said, I live under command and authority, and I know that the demons and the illnesses live under your authority. Give the command, and the healing will happen, and it does. Jesus constantly is pointing his disciples to pay attention to the faith of people who look nothing like them. And in this story, he confronts their racism and their sexism and says, you need to pay attention, disciples, to the people who come from places that you think are God-forsaken and to the women who you constantly push aside. Listen to them. They know me. They see me. They have faith, even more so than what you do. So now what? We're living right now in what's called ordinary time. It's a time between Epiphany Sunday and the start of Lent, which will happen on Ash Wednesday a month from now, February 14th. And in this space, the church takes its attention off of the big movements of God's salvation history in Jesus Christ, his birth, death, resurrection, and points us instead towards the ordinary ways of life. What does it mean for us to live as God's people here and now? How do we work out this salvation in relationship with other people? And if we hear what God is doing with his disciples in this text, we hear for us a call to racial reconciliation. We hear for us a call to seek out the diversity of God's body so that we hear the full story of God's grace. If we take seriously the testimony of the Syrian woman in relationship to the disciples, we begin to see that in order for us to truly see who Jesus is, we need to hear from people who are not like us. We need to hear from people outside of our culture, outside of our gender, outside of our communities, because they are experiencing the grace of Christ as well. God is at work in others, those who are different from us, different languages and cultures, and we need to hear from them. And they need to hear from us. It becomes a reciprocal environment where we learn about God's grace and we make room for each other to hear the stories of God at work in us. We need the diversity of God's people. The second is an invitation to God's table, to the table of Jesus Christ. You notice in this text, the language being used is the feeding language and the feeding that happens of, of at a table and being at a table. And what's happened in here is that Jesus has reoriented his disciples' understanding of what it means to be God's children. And what he's saying is to be God's children is not by your ethnic heritage or by being a male and, and good standing in your culture. To be God's children, you need to be created by God, which we all are. And you need to have faith in God, which God gives as a gift. And he invites all those who have faith to come to the table. And so next week, Sunday, we're going to gather here. And we're going to have the bread and we're going to have the cup set up here. And we are going to enter into this table together. 
But as we do, as Jesus gives us this invitation to come together next week, he's also inviting us not only to examine our hearts and our attitudes about those who are different than us. He's inviting us to recognize that when we come to that table, we're going to be gathered with Syrians, with people from Iraq, from people from China, from people from Latin America, from people all over the world. Whether they're physically in this room with us or not, doesn't matter. This table that God sets in Jesus Christ is one of a global invitation to all of his children. And that in us coming to that table, he's calling to us to be part of a family that doesn't actually look like us or sound like us. The majority of the Christians of this world live in the southern hemisphere and are not white and don't speak English. We are part of a global body that Jesus Christ is at work in. And when he gathers us around that table, we participate in that global body and we're called through that table into a lifestyle that brings about that reconciliation, not just in our thoughts and our minds and not just in some future day, but it gives us that reconciliation as marching orders for how the schedules and moments of our day-to-day living work out. To be a people who welcome others in because Christ welcomes us at his diverse table. Let's pray. Lord,